following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. I don't know if you can picture this scene in your mind, but I'm standing in a brand new junior college. I'm in the science building. The ceilings are really high. The architecture is really, really cool. On the wall on the north side of this particular room that I'm now standing in is a never-seen-before box. It has a TV screen at the top. It has buttons in the middle. It has a coin slot at the bottom. And the name of the box is Pong. There's a lunchroom. And for the first time ever, there's actually good food. And I have on my tray a French dip sandwich with au jus sauce. While I was getting my food, I was thinking. And as I step into the giant open science hall from the cafeteria, I stop and look at this giant hall. But I'm not really looking at the hall. I'm pausing for a moment. A moment that actually I will never forget. I had been going to church for four years. First, because I was forced to go to church, and second, then because the girls were cute. (laughs) But at this moment, I had just finished sharing Christ with my friends. Girls were important, but no longer my life. I was excited about God's Word. I wanted to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Rebellion was no longer cool. Church was no longer boring. The Bible was no longer a mystery. And the gospel was no longer unknown. I didn't want to sin. In fact, I hated sinning at this particular moment. I loved Christ and I only wanted to live for Him. And it's the first time that that reality hit me like a ton of bricks. It was a brand new thought. It had never been thought before. I was no longer the same person. And I I started to smile and cry just a little And then a scary thought hit me. I had been going to church for four years and didn't know Christ. And those are the people that James is writing. That's the ones. They were complaining about their trials. They were blaming God for their temptations. They were struggling with doing the word of God. They were battling with partiality. They were controlling and not controlling their tongues. They were following earthly wisdom and they were falling in love with the world. Incredible. And now in James chapter 4 verses 7 through 10, James finally calls his readers to turn to Jesus Christ, to be converted. That first moment with holding a tray, with a French dip sandwich, with au jus sauce getting cold, I realized I was not the same person. I was converted, and that's exactly what James is going to call you and I to today, to be converted. He commands them to convert to Christ. He does. And in doing so, he shows us the heart of true conversion, what that's really like, what is in the heart of those who are truly saved, and what kind of heart do Christians have. And true conversion really has a a submissive, loyal, intimate, pure focused, sin-hating, humble heart. All of that is a part of the transformation that God accomplishes. And in these four verses, 
that we're going to look at, just four, there are ten commands. Ten! In just these, when you look at it in the original language, you're like, whoa, what's going on there? It's kind of shocking almost. In fact, together, they make up one of the most direct calls to salvation in the entire Bible. That's what's going on here. There are some who interpret this passage for a call for Christians to deal with their worldliness and to live more on fire and godly for Christ, but that's really not the main focus. It is a focus, but not the main focus of what's going on here. James writes, professing church attenders, people that you know that you're like, I wonder if they're in Christ. Are they really converted? They know Jesus, but have they been born again? He's writing those folks, and he's testing their faith to find out if they're genuine or phony. He wants to try to help the tares know that they're not wheat. He wants to make sure they know that. So what drove him to call believers, or these church attenders, excuse me, uh, his readers to be converted. James just told his readers that unbelieving wisdom is natural. It's demonic. It's not of God. And then he just talked about, like, if you're the friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. I mean, he just told them that. He's driving that into their soul, and he's saying, well, what do I do about that? Well, this is the passage that answers that question. This is the passage that says, well, then you need to convert to Christ. Not know about Jesus, but actually be transformed. You say, well, how does that happen? That's what this passage is all about. He's about to expose those who claim to be saved. He's about to call them to repentance. He's about to call them to faith. In fact, James is calling sinners to turn to Christ in verse 8. And sinners is a term that is only used towards those who are non-Christians. Only in the New Testament. So he wants them to turn from their sin and repentance and depend on Christ in faith in this passage. Now you know, and I know, that the Bible's really clear. It really is. God sovereignly chooses his children to be saved. He does. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, all tell us, before that happened, God predestined them to the adoption of sons. God already knew who his children would be. And all who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's going to make you like Jesus. Some of us kicking and screaming, amen? Okay? But he's going to make you like Christ. You didn't choose Christ. Christ chose you. You say, Chris, where do you get that? John 15, 16. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. There you go. Is that direct enough? And yet the Bible is also just as clear that the Lord commands all men everywhere to repent. And he does not wish that any would perish, but all to come to repentance. And our Lord is graciously desiring all men to be saved and for all to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the question is, is God sovereign in salvation or are you responsible to respond in repentance and faith? And the answer is, there you go. One more time, FBC, if you're new with us, is Jesus God or is Jesus man? Answer, Okay, was the Bible written by God, or was it written by His chosen apostles and prophets? Did God choose you for salvation before the foundation of the world, but must you respond in repentance and faith? There you go, that's it. Uh, All that is true. You say, Chris, solve that tension. No, I will not. Okay, that is because you are finite, and He is what? Infinite. So understand, consequently, throughout the Scripture, God gives repeated calls It's legitimate to say, turn to Christ, be converted, surrender to Him. That's all legitimate because all throughout Scripture you find these calls to come 
to Christ. And right here, James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, is one of those calls. That's what it is. James already attracted us last time at verse 6. What did he say in verse 6? Take a look at it. Come on, you got your Bible open, I hope. And he said in verse 6, God gives greater what? Grace. That's the incredible free gift of salvation. God's grace freely bestowed on undeserving sinners like you, like me, who trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. His redeeming grace is greater than your sin. Amen? You can't be bad enough. You can't be worldly enough. You can't be unwise enough for God to reject you. His grace is greater. And therefore, we can then surrender to Him and receive His saving grace and overcome the power of sin, the flesh, the world, the power of Satan. No matter how sinful you are, no matter how deeply you are immersed in the world, no matter how enslaved you are to your fears, understand His grace is greater than your sin. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. God's grace has more sufficient power to save, redeem. So read aloud with me from your outline, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, and we're going to look at this incredible call to conversion. Let's read it together. Ready? Here we go. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, I know those are strange words, but that's how James articulates, really, our understanding of repentance and faith in a very real way. And did you notice something? I hope you did. Take a look at verse 6 and verse 10. If you look at them, you'll see in verse 6, he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. When you're observing the Bible, when you begin to see that connection, you understand verse 6, humble, is connected to verse 10, humble. And therefore, the context demands that this paragraph is about humbling yourself before the Lord, humbling yourself in order to become a recipient of God's greater grace, James is calling his readers to turn to Christ to receive God's grace. That's what's going on. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 that we looked at last week just describe those in the church who love this world. And James has a great burden, as I do, for self-deceived make-believers. So I was one for four years. And I don't want anybody to be going to church, going to a church like ours, and end up in eternal torment in hell. Do you understand? I want you to know Christ. And so James is attempting to expose the hearts of those who appear to be Christians, but aren't actually saved. So James 4.4, he says, you adulteresses, remember that? Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. And no Christian is the enemy of God. The solution for those who are in the church, but still God's enemy is verses 7 through 10. What we're looking at today. The tear, the make-believer, is to humble themselves before the Lord. Now, again, like you said, if you were to look at this in the original language, you would see just smack dab in your face, ten commands. It's it's pretty overwhelming. Ten commands that, that basically he's calling these phony believers, ten commands in these verses, calling those readers to conversion. And, And these are truths that every believer here will somehow identify with. Every one of us. If you're genuinely born again, you'll taste of these to some degree. There are elements of conversion that exist in every testimony here. 
when you, when you says draw near to God, listen, Christian, have you drawn near to God? Yes or no? Yeah, you, you wanted him, right? So all these you identify with, all of them, to some degree, they're true in your heart to some degree. And if you're not a believer, then this passage is for you to say, look, it's time for you to surrender. It's time for you to say, I can't do this. I need your grace. I'm, I, I can't be religious enough. I can't be good enough. I, I, I just have to totally rely on you. That's what he's calling for here. And that's what he's saying. You need God's greater grace. So now, James reveals how to get that saving grace. And these verses describe the right response to God's gracious offer of salvation. The free gift of salvation. James is going to show God's offer will require your dependent faith in Christ and his work. And God's offer will also involve you turning from your sin and repentance and loyally following Christ. True salvation involves faith and repentance. True salvation involves faith and repentance. In fact, Acts 20, 21, take a look at it. Solemnly testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, that's everybody, of repentance towards God and what? Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Both one verse, both truths, you need both. How does James say it? I see general description of faith and general description of repentance here. Okay, I'm not trying to force this on the text, but I get a general sense of what's going on here in this text. So that's why I said, number one in your outline, it's like dependent faith. It's like it. It's not faith he's talking about here, but it's like dependent faith. So what are you talking about? Well, verses 7 and 8, James gives three commands that all declare your dependency. All declare your loyalty. All declare your submission and intimacy with Christ and salvation. This communicates faith in Christ. What he has done with his death and burial and resurrection for sin on our behalf and the reliance upon him. Take a look, verse 7 and half of verse 8. It says, submit, therefore, to who? God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, the first expression of conversion is first in your outline, come under God's authority. Come under God's authority. Verse 7, the first command is submit, therefore, to God. Submit, therefore, to God. It literally is come under God in submission. Uh, Be subject to God. Embrace God's authority. He's in charge, you're not. Everybody okay with that? Every Christian in this room goes, yeah, I get that. He's in charge and I'm not. He's God and I'm not. In fact, the New Testament, that word submit is used to describe Jesus' submission to his own parents in Luke chapter 2. It describes submission to human government in Romans 13. Submission describes church's submission to Christ in Ephesians 5. And also a servant submission to his master in Titus chapter 2. So James uses this word submit to describe a willing, conscious compliance to God's authority as the sovereign ruler of the total universe. You're complying in each event in everyday life. The word submit is a military term, and it means to rank yourself under or get into proper rank, to line up under. Submission is the willingness to embrace the orders and desires of the commander. You don't give the orders, Christ does. I don't give the orders, Christ does. There's one general, and the rest of us are privates. Got it? One master, the rest of us are slaves. If there's any area that you're keeping from him, that's a bad spiritual indicator. 
It's surrender. You're submitting. And as true Christians, it doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. It just means that and you're not willing to do this. As a true Christian, you will give your allegiance to God. You will seek to obey His commands. You will follow His leadership. No one can be saved without submitting himself or herself to God. Willingly coming under His sovereign authority as Lord to follow His will no matter what. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Look at it. If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says, he must what? Oh, deny himself. Means know you, all him. And take up his cross and what? Follow Christ. Uh, Matthew 10, 39. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his wife for my sake will find it. Find his life. Contrary to what is taught in some circles today, there is no such thing as someone who can have Christ as his Savior without Christ as his Lord. Because there, Christ isn't dualistic. This is the one Lord. If I'm truly converted, if I'm a genuine Christian, this is how it breaks down. I'll want his answers over my answers. I'll want his ways over my ways. I'll want his wisdom over my wisdom. I'll want his best over my best. His priorities over my wants. His mission over my life. His church over my friends. His joy over my happiness. His will over my choices. I'll be willing to come under authority in all of life. That means all my purchases, all my relationships, all my family, all my kids, all my spouses, all my free time, all my money over everything. One spouse though, okay? (laughs) He's God and I will submit to him. It's a heart issue here. Plus, secondly in your outline, you'll choose sides. You'll choose sides. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. To resist is to take your stand, to be opposed to. Salvation is a change of masters. It's a change of allegiance, a change of family, a change of armies, and a change of teams. You're no longer on his team. All people are either under the lordship of Christ or the lordship of Satan. That's it. There's no middle ground. The real believer's life has turned from serving the devil to serving God, from being a slave of sin and Satan to being a slave of Christ and righteousness. That's it. Resist the devil. Take your stand. Put your foot down. You're basically saying no to him and yes to Christ. You're choosing to use and, and, and to be involved and to be tied in and to be interrelated to Christ. James uh, uses this name, devil, because he's saying that Basically, all that slander that was a part of my life is now, now gone. I, I, I don't want to be a part of that. All those accusations. In fact, anyone, John 8, 44, who does not belong to Christ is a child of the devil. In fact, in 1 John 3, 8, it says the one who practices sin in an ongoing defiant way is basically of the devil. The, the slanderer. So resist slander, resist accusation. How? Resist by standing firm on God's truth. That's how you resist. Like the Lord resisted the enemy by quoting Scripture in his temptation. In spiritual warfare, the Scripture is your weapon. It's your sword. That's how you resist. You resist by following, obeying, and standing firm upon God's Word. Those who are converted to genuine salvation will resist the devil by standing firm on God's truth. Are you getting it? That's where you say, well, how do I take my stand? You say, well, I'm going to do what the Bible says. Even though everybody else in the world and everything else in the world is going to not do that. I'm going to say, no, I'm going to do this. When you came to Christ, you said, that's the side that I'm on. 
I'm on his team, and I follow his orders from his word. In fact, it says when you do that, the enemy will flee from you, means run away, avoid, give flight, escape, means get away from you. This highest, wisest, oldest, most powerful created being cannot defeat those whom Christ has redeemed. Amen? He can't. He can give us trouble, but he can't defeat us because our stand is on God's truth and all he is about is lies. And we are are saturated in a world of deception. Saturated in it. And the master of deception can't undo the power of God's truth. That's why we need to know his truth. And the devil cannot possess or control the, the same body that the Holy Spirit does. And so when you submit to Christ, you determine which army you belong to, which side, which team. You're fighting for Christ. You're opposing the devil because you have a heart now that wants to. And you also, thirdly, desire relationship. Desire relationship. You will, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This isn't about religion or a system. This is about a personal relationship. This is the heart of a believer who's pursuing a love relationship with Christ as their first love. You want that. And the idea of drawing near to God was associated originally with the Levitical priests. And basically, in Exodus 19, it eventually described anyone's approach to God. And so salvation definitely involves more than submitting to God and resisting the devil, but also the redeemed heart longs for intimate communion with God. Wait, wait, wait. Christian, in your heart of hearts, even when you aren't praying, even when you're not walking close with the Lord, is there not in your heart a desire for intimacy with Christ? Yes or no? Sure. That's what he's talking about here. It's that I hunger for that. In fact, the Greek word draw there means to get close, to come near, to move towards relationship. Do you remember when you wanted to get close to your spouse to be? Remember that? And you wanted to find out what they were like and how they're made. And so you, you try to get close to them and understand that. I, I, you know, I, I, I was learning about Jean. I, she liked animals, like God's creation. She liked birds. She liked dogs. She liked cats. <laughs> Certain things had to be overlooked. She liked honeycomb candy. Certain kind of flowers. Strangely, most people are shocked by this. She loves sports cars, knows everything that's on the road. I'm like, what's that? Oh, she knows. I don't know. She knows. And that's why A.W. Tozer calls nearness is likeness. I want to write that down. Nearness is likeness. The more we're like God, the more nearer we are to him. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Getting to know Christ personally, intimately, relationally, knowing all about him. Listen, your darkest day, and some of you are going through some really hairy stuff, and you just haven't slowed down enough to say, wait, I want to be in God's presence right now. I want to talk to him. I want to hear his word and let him minister to my heart. Because that's, that's the first step. That's what we all enjoy. You, if you are a Christian, you are an intimate, personal friend of Jesus Christ. Right? Draw near. You know, conversion involves the gift of faith. And really, I think these terms are another way of describing faith. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. God gave you that faith. Not as a result of works that you were religious or good enough or whatever, but again, all his grace so that no one would boast. And faith has a a side-choosing dependence to it, uh, uh, which desires intimacy with with Christ. That's what he's calling us to. And then it also involves, secondly in your outline, like directional repentance. Like directional repentance. It's not not talking about repentance directly, but these are imageries and and pictures that give us a a stronger picture of repentance. And and basically the Bible does emphasize the need for repentance. It is required for genuine salvation. Repentance is a change of mind that always leads to a change of behavior and a change of life. Repentance is turning from sin and pursuing the Lord. It's, It's a change. In fact, it talks about it in Acts 26.20. Keep declaring that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. There'll be fruit that comes out of repentance, okay? Change of behavior. 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, the gospel. Repentance is a part of genuine conversion. It always has been, and it always shows itself by, first in your outline, cleaning up your lifestyle outwardly. Cleaning up your lifestyle outwardly. You say, what do you mean? I'm going to fix up my life? No, God's going to change you, and you're going you're to change. God's going to change you, and therefore you're going to change. Verse 8, what's he say? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And again, sinners only a term used for the non-Christian. And he basically says here, that this is the ritual washing with water which made a man ceremonial fit in order to approach the worship of God. The priests used to wash their hands in a unique way and then every Jew before they ate would wash their hands in a unique way and then it evolved this whole idea of cleansing your hands into basically living a pure life. So that, that idea of washing your hands became emblematic or allegorical to say, hey, clean up your act. So it basically stands for moral purity. And James is saying to unbelievers, you must turn from your sin to come to Christ. To know God, you must refuse and uh, sin, confess sin, recognize sin, and repent of sin. And sinners who are violating God's word, and they are missing out on God's perfect character. That's who sinners are, and sinners are non-Christians, again, the New Testament. So James is appealing to sinners, telling us that these churchgoers who are unbelievers... And this Greek word sinner is only used in the New Testament of unbelievers. And so here, it's not just any kind of unbeliever. Actually, that word sinner actually means hardened sinner or a person whose sin is obvious and notorious. James is reminding you the deepest moral degenerate can be forgiven. And those who are born again or cleansed now will want to clean up their lifestyle. They won't want to live the same way. And in conversion, you, you turn from your external sins. You, you cleanse your hands, right? And, and you stop that external behavior and ending that outward conduct, which is sinful. You, you are continually repenting. And in stopping those outward behaviors, you know that the Lord is not pleased with, so you're wanting to do that because he's not pleased. And you're stopping those external actions that violate his law, that are contrary to his character. It's sin, so you don't want to be that person And therefore, what you do is then you adopt a, secondly in your outline here, a loyal internal single-mindedness. A loyal internal single-mindedness. You say, where do you get that from? Well, verse 8. He says, purify your hearts, you what? 
double-minded, so you're single-minded, not double-minded, and cleansing your hands points to external behavior, and now purifying your heart refers to what? Internal behavior. (laughs) Okay, how many of you had that uh, conversion experience where all your behavior almost instantly changed on the outside? Anybody with me on that? Like, think, okay, five of you, thank you. Um, Amazingly, a lot of Christians, when they come to Christ, it's like, you know, they were behaving a certain way, talking a certain way, and that, that pretty much radically changed. But it's really unique when the inside changes. Are you with me on this? And by the way, that takes a lot longer, and I don't think we're ever done until we get to heaven. Amen to that? But that's what's happening here. It's that inward stuff he's talking about. So that's why Jeremiah, the great prophet in 4.14 says, wash your heart from evil. Oh, Jerusalem, that you might be what? Saved. The heart's got to change. And the Greek word there, purify, is holy, chastity, purification, sincerity, and hearts there is who you are. Your heart in the scripture is your, your thoughts, your mind, your will, your emotions, your, your knowledge. Your heart is the center of your spiritual life. The heart is the core of who you are. And he's saying, I want you to purify your inner man, inner woman. God doesn't merely clean up your external behavior. He cleans up your inner person. Now, sometimes when I read a quote to you, I, 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 I always clarify it. Uh, this is from George Whitfield, but it has been modified by me, okay? Because I wanted it to be uh, more understandable, so George will correct me when he gets to heaven. But um, it says this, Every man by his own natural will hates God. But when he is turned to the Lord by repentance then his will will change. His conscience becomes quickened. His hard heart is melted. And his unruly affections are crucified. Through repentance, his entire soul is transformed. He will have new inclinations, new desires, and new habits. You're internally purified. And James says those who were lost were also double-minded. Double-minded means they want two things in opposition to each other. All right? Double-minded. The the Greek expression here describing one soul divided between God and the world. And this man is the hypocrite who who basically uh, occasionally believes in God but fails to trust him when trials come. He's a double-minded man. He's very unstable. So the Lord Jesus made sure you understand that he um, disapproves and actually is not about creating a whole bunch of double-minded people. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve, how many masters? Two for he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one or despise the other. Matthew twelve thirty. he is who is not with me is against me. A double-minded person, therefore, can't possibly be a Christian. So stop vacillating, he's saying, between this world and the next world. Stop vacillating between God's word and your thinking, or the world's thinking. Stop vacillating between affection for Christ and affection for this world. Be internally pure. And then thirdly, hate your sin. Hate your sin. Hating your sin. Verse 9. Look what he says. Be miserable. This is such an encouraging passage. (laughs) Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Wow, what a depressing verse. That's probably not in your Jesus person pocket promise book, okay? Be miserable. That is a state of newborn state truly broken over their sin. It's just somebody who's broken over their sin. Be miserable. Mourn is to be sad, to grieve, to feel the sorrow over sin. 
God will not turn away a heart broken over sin. And mourning is that inner response to such brokenness. To weep is to shed tears. The outward manifestation of that inward sorrow over sin. And laughter here is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it signifies flippant laughter of those foolishly enslaved to the world's pleasures and yet not repentant. And so he's saying, let that be turned to gloom or sorrow. The picture here is people who are giving little thought to God, little thought to their death, little thought to the certainty of judgment. Every single person on planet Earth knows they're going to be judged, knows they're going to die, okay? And they're giving very little thought to that. And James calls on such people to mourn over their sin to the point of dejection. Now, let me help you with something. We live in a unique day. And the unique day is that it's filled with deception. It's filled with lies, so much so that even it's made its way into the church. And the church is now filled with messages and teaching from God's Word that doesn't talk about sin. It just talks about how great Jesus is, but doesn't talk about why He came, why He died, and that sin is actually what's keeping you from Christ, that sin must be dealt with. You cannot be in God's presence in your sin, amen? You need to be covered in His righteousness. You need to be surrendered to Christ. Christ needs to be in you, regenerating you, making you a new person, and in making you a new person, you can stand in God's presence, right? And you've been made righteous, and then you desire to live righteous, and that's what God has called us to, but we live in a day that constantly is undermining that, even in the church, And James is saying, no. What's he saying? No. No, No, that is a lie. Sin is serious. And you're not going to get the gospel, and you're not going to be right. You're not going to be filled with joy unless you deal with sin. You can't get around it, friends. One mark of the truly humility and true humility is dealing with the seriousness of sin and repentance. It's repenting of it, recognizing it, being sorrow over it. Listen, there is not a single genuine Christian in this world and in this room who has not had massive sorrow over their sin. That is indicative to your conversion. And if you haven't had that, you're not a Christian. Period. That's why this verse is here. Listen, he says, cleanse your hands, stop doing evil. That's what he's meaning. Purify your heart, stop thinking evil. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Feel remorse over your sin. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Why? Don't make a joke out of your wickedness. It is not a joke. Jesus didn't die for a joke. He died because sin had to be dealt with. It's that defiant. Why? Look at Psalm 51 verse 17. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what he's calling for here, a broken and contrite heart. James is not removing or denying the joy of the Christian life. James is not demanding that men or women should live gloomy lives. You ever seen a Christian like that? Gloomy, depressing world of sin, and they're gloomy. And James is saying when it comes to gaining true salvation and turning from your sin and general repentance, there'll be a soberness about your sin, not a flippancy. Not a flippancy, not a frivolousness. And that leads to number three in your outline, like devoted obedience. Like devoted obedience. So the conclusion, verse 10, he says, humble yourselves 
in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I see three things here. The humble is to make oneself low. Now, you know how some people make themselves low? They put themselves down so that everybody else will build them up, right? right? They, they kind of put themselves down so everybody kind of encourages them and builds them up. That's not what he's talking about here. This is the realization of your complete unworthiness and complete lostness. Because of your sin, to humble is to take on the role of the slave to the master, meaning I've got nothing, I have no resources at all. And notice in verse 10, James clarifies that Jesus Christ is the Lord. See that? The Lord, the master. You humble yourselves, you lose yourself, and you think only of Christ and his labors. Like Christ said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Losing your life includes, first in your outline, dependent service. Dependent service. You're going to want to serve Christ. You're going to want to honor Him, love Him. Your life's going to be about Him. Humble yourselves. And that basically means to become reduced in rank. It means to make oneself low. It's like a serve servant, a slave, who serves. You, you take the lowest position to do the dirtiest job. Now, did Christ ever model that for us? Sure, right? He took the lowest position as the slave and washed the disciples' feet. Humility is actually you serving everybody at your surprise birthday party. That's humility. You don't deserve anything, but because you've been given such incredible grace, incredible love, incredible mercy, incredible forgiveness, incredible transformation, that in your heart, you, you know that Christ deserves everything. Are you with me on this? You realize that you're nothing and Christ is everything. You know, come on, the simple, simple analogies, right? You recognize that two decades after you're dead, nobody's going to remember you at all. Does that depress you? So what's the good news? Well, missionary C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. The humble embrace Galatians 6.3. This should be a life verse. It is for me. If anyone thinks himself something when he is what? Nothing. He deceives himself. It's not about us. That's why, that's why we can forgive each other, get along with each other. That's why, because it's not about us. It's about Christ, what he wants. Letting him be seen in how we treat each other. Letting him be seen in our relationships. Those who are overwhelmed by their own sinfulness will serve the one who is sinless. The one who has been forgiven for their sins will worship the one who forgives. And the one who gave nothing to their salvation will be devoted to one who gave everything for our salvation. Plus, you'll also pursue, secondly, intimate submission. Intimate submission. Verse 10, in the presence of the Lord, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, who is, again, Christ, Lord and Master. Converted Christians follow Christ as their intimate personal master. You don't take orders from him via text or email, praise God, not even a phone call, but from the one who loves you so much he died for you, wants to direct your life so that you'll be most blessed, even through the dark waters, even through the difficult times. True Christians submit to Christ as Lord and do so relationally, intimately, joyously. I, I've met far too many so-called Christians and church attenders who... They, they kind of wanted to be in the family. They wanted to be kind of in the system. But they don't know Christ. And he's calling you here 
to know Christ personally, intimately, relationally. It's not pretend, it's real. And in a moment, every Christian here could be in the presence of God, in their heart. That's what he wants. Christians understand it's intimacy. And then thirdly in your outline, a trusting future. He says in that last phrase at verse 10, and he will exalt you. For me, honestly, and I mean this with all sincerity, salvation was enough for me, but not enough for Christ. Not enough. He desires to exalt his children, and James says he will raise you up, meaning lift you up above all heights. And the prodigal son is an incredible example of this, is he not? Here, the contrite humility, and then he's exalted. When he came to his senses in the far-off country, what's he say? He says, I'm going to get up. Listen, this could be your testimony today. I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just, just make me one of your hired ones, your, your, your servants. But when he returned home, what happened? He expressed sincere repentance. In verses 22 to 24, the father restored him as a son, exalted him back into the family, and celebrated. Listen, the primary focus of verses 7 through 10 is a call to salvation. And verse 10 is a picture of God giving his James 4, 6 greater grace to those who come to the Lord in faith and repentance and humility. Christ will exalt the repentant lavishly. So let's take this home. Letter A, be motivated to turn to Christ by your horrific sin and shortcomings. Be motivated to turn to Christ by your horrific sin and shortcomings. Only when you realize only when you realize, and listen, you might need to tell this to family and friends. When you realize your own ignorance, will you ask for God's guidance? Only when you realize your own poverty and what really matters, will you pray for the riches of God's grace? Only when you realize your weakness in salvation, will you draw upon God's, uh, God's strength? Only when you realize your own sin, will you realize your need for a Savior and forgiveness? True humility only begins when you embrace your helplessness and your hopelessness. Do you remember those days? Do you remember that moment when you said, I got nothing? I, I, I deserve everything you're going to give me, and, and I'm, I'm crying out for mercy. Did, did you say that? Somehow, some way? There had to be that call. Your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, your self-confidence will keep you from salvation. Isolation, independence, indifference will keep you from forgiveness and Christ and eternal life. Those are each manifestations of the worst sin of all, which is pride. And that's what he's talking about at the end here. Only by coming to Christ broken with nothing to offer in desperation, utter surrender, total submission of heart, will you gain salvation. You say, Chris, that's not what the Bible says. That's not biblical. Yes, it is, friends. Take a look at what Jesus says again one more time. Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? you got to come to an end of yourself. One more time. Wait. You have to come to an end of yourself. I'm nothing. I have nothing. I can do nothing. I am a desperately needy sinner desiring forgiveness. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The only path to forgiveness is losing your life and gaining the life of Christ. True conversion 
has a submissive, intimate, sin-hating, humble heart. Letter B, be motivated to turn to Christ by the promises of being in Christ. The promises of being Christ. In this passage, they're not only, this is chock full, it's not only ten commands. There are actually three promises in here. Promises that result from coming to Christ. Did you see them? Maybe you didn't. They're the future tense, and it's listed three times telling us these three truths will happen. What are the three truths that will happen? The devil will flee from you. That's one of them. God will draw near to you, that's another one, and the master will elevate you. Those are three promises here, and you'll be freed from the evil control of the world and the devil. You'll be intimate with Christ, and you'll be rewarded and exalted by God. That's what he promises. When you submit to Christ, God promises to bless you. Come on. Isn't that what the Lord was saying when he gives this other invitation? Matthew 11, come to me. Can you feel this? This reminds me of my conversion. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You remember that weight? Weary and heavy laden. And I will give you what? Rest now and eternal rest. Take my yoke upon me. Take it upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls are you hungry are you thirsty is your inner person crying out for real life then respond to even this final New Testament appeal again God's sovereign and salvation and yet all the way through the Old Testament you're seeing these invitations are you not I see them all the time And the last one in your Bible is Revelation 22. Look at it, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say what? Come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Don't you love that phrase? The water of life without cost. What's he say? Come. Be motivated to turn to Christ by the promises of being in Christ. The letter C, be motivated to live for Christ by God's abundant grace toward the repentant. When you came to Christ, like the prodigal, in humility, repentance, and brokenness, over your sin, your heavenly Father said to you, in effect, that what that earthly father said to his son. What did he say? And the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring out the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For his son of mine, this son of mine was dead and he has come to life again and he was lost and he has been found and they began to what? Celebrate. I got to tell you, I stand here this morning affirming what my life would have been like without Christ. I was outwardly successful. I was poised to be a a massive success in my career choice. All kinds of opportunities opened up for me. I had the best-looking, most popular friends. I was was in the in-group. I was the envy of the in-group. I mean, we were, yeah, anyway, amazing. I had more fun and more entertainment that, that life can offer I was also internally empty and desperate and knew that I deserved hell. I knew it. I wasn't doubting that at all. And God in his grace awakened me to my need. The need to be intimate with Christ, to be forgiven, transformed, 
and given a new mission, a new purpose. And what was that? To, to call everyone to come to Christ, become like Christ, to live for Christ, and to long for Christ. And as a result, my empty life became abundant, and my eternal life is going to be full, sinless, purposeful, and 100% pure joy. At this point in my life, I'm looking at, you know, the end a lot more than I used to when I was 22. Uh, one more time, just one more time. When I'm gone, I want you to party. I want you to celebrate. I want you to laugh and go for the, as much joy as possible and then remember that that's nothing compared to what I'm experiencing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take your word and that we would be more prone to hate the world because we see what you did for us, that we received your abundant grace. Father, we pray that we might humble ourselves before you on a daily basis and not forget the incredible riches we have because we're in Christ. Father, we didn't do any of this stuff, but you created a heart that allowed us to respond this way and to walk in fellowship and intimacy with you. And we pray that every single person in this room, young and old, would have a saving, genuine, born-again relationship with you. That they have truly been forgiven. And that they truly are your friend. Father, if not, would you draw them? Would you finally help them and awaken them? Lord, that we don't need to be enamored with this world. We don't need to be succumbed to the lies of this world and the culture, and, but we can be freed and so encouraged to fellowship and enjoy one another and enjoy you and long for our home in heaven. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased with how we worship you today. And our worship needs to be in response to your word, and it needs to be with our lives not just with an acknowledgement of what your word says, but are saying, I want my life to be under your authority, your word, your truth. And Father, we pray again, you would be glorified and that you would be pleased. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.